This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up in this edition, my conversation with author Daniel Bergner on his new book, The Mind and the Moon. Daniel raises profound questions about how we understand ourselves and the essential human divide between our brains and our minds. It's about vulnerability and personal dignity, the terrifying choices confronted by families and patients, and the prospect of alternatives. The Mind and the Moon is a thought-provoking read. Bergner explores how to seek a deeper engagement with ourselves and one another and how to find a better path towards caring for our minds. Also in the show, new music from South Korea by a young musician, and you're advised to keep a watchful eye on. First, Clean, The New Science of Skin is the title of the book, and James Hamblin is my guest. James, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. I've got to ask you, first of all, um, you have a very good sense of humor, don't you? <laughs> uh, I, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Your book made me chuckle quite a, quite a lot. So, and the other thing I think is important that I learned an awful lot from your book. Now, you're a doctor, you're a lecturer, um, and you're a writer at The Atlantic, and I've been following some of your articles in The Atlantic for some time. I really like this book a great deal. You tell us a lot of things which I... I didn't know. Let's start at the beginning and tell me why you wrote this book. Well, I, I was just starting to hear more and more about the skin microbiome. This was in 2015 and, and uh, get the idea that, you know, it wasn't just the gut that has a microbiome, you know, the trillions of microbes that are, that are inside us. And we, I keep hearing this stat that we're, we're more more microbial cells than human cells uh, constitute us. And it's a few pounds of microbes we're carrying around, but uh, that they're not just inside our gut. They're also all on our skin. And that, uh, you know, you're never fully uh, rid of them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be. Most of them are totally innocuous or, or doing something to help us uh, and uh, not causing disease. And, and that just, um, looking at how the gut microbiome changed our, our understanding of, of microbes, of, of antibiotics, of this new concept of probiotics, um, and then seeing things sort of start to come together in similar ways in the skin uh, dermatology realm, uh, I wanted to pursue that. And I wanted to understand how this was going to change our whole idea of what it means to be clean, if yes. not yes. to remove, you know, if not to be sterile. What does it mean? And you explain so much in the book. You give us some history. You, you, you talk about so many different areas. And whilst we're talking about history, one of the things that popped into my mind um, uh, when your story about not watching, uh, one of the things that I remembered was my, one of my grandmothers talking to me one time about pomander and how that was used when she was growing up. And before that, she was explaining to me how pomander was such an important thing. That's how people kept themselves not clean, but they sort of disguised the smell of their odors with, with um, <laughs> pomander and things like that. Body smells aren't that bad, you explained to us. T talk to me about why, why we're so fearful of, of the way we smell. It's, it's such a weird thing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think uh, in 
many cultures we've kind of distilled human bodies smell down to two things. We either smell, someone either smells clearly bad, like body odor, like onions, uh, really <laughs> annoyingly disgusting, or, or they smell like we're expected to smell, which is kind of like nothing, <laughs> or soap. <laughs> um, and we have really gotten away from most of history, which was you didn't smell offensive to people. You weren't uh, disgusting people, but you didn't smell like nothing. People knew each other's smells. <laughs> um, and um, there may have even been, you know, cues that we were getting about people's um, uh, health and emotional states um, by their smells. And I, we would get them from ourselves possibly even, um, but it, it's certainly a continuum and you start to, realize this as you experiment with doing less and less in the in the hygiene realm i mean no one wants to smell offensive to other people right but there's a lot of middle ground in there where you you smell just fine so so one of the things i'm thinking about as i'm reading your book clean the new science of skin is that automatically we start thinking of smell we start thinking about body odor just when we start talking about skin that's that's kind of strange, isn't it? Is that just our culture? Is it Western culture? Or do all cultures have that sort of association, skin equals smell? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think if we look through history where people were clearly not um, bathing, uh, uh, you know, we didn't have indoor plumbing until 150 years ago, widely yeah. at all. We didn't have soap. So, um, but there are notes throughout history of particularly foul smelling people, which means we knew some people smelled worse than others. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but um, it wasn't just an accepted thing that everyone smelled bad. So, so clearly something was going on there where um, I think the, the modern propensity to develop body odor, if you go, you know, if many people will get body odor, if they don't use deodorant for, you know, one day or they'll get it if they don't reapply to deodorant after, 12 hours or something. Yeah. And that's probably because we've decimated uh, the biomes and so messed them up that they're, they're very quick to be populated by the odor producing bacteria. Uh, and it's a cycle where we, if, if we don't let a natural or diverse microbial ecosystem grow in and settle into place, um, then we're going to be quickly over, uh, overpopulated by <laughs> foul smelling things right now the story you tell about you yourself not washing when you were doing this when you're undertaking this how long did it take for you to get used to your own your natural smell oh you know i guess i don't notice my own smell so i would have <laughs> to i would go off of my girlfriend who um I, I think she, she always just said I smelled fine. Um, yeah. She liked it more than, and um, I mean, there were times certainly when I'd smell sweaty or uh, I got body odor. You don't, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I like it in the book to kind of uh, training for a marathon. Uh, yeah. n- nothing happens overnight. If, if, if someone who's never run goes out and tries to run 26 miles, they're going to say it's impossible. They might yes. even die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but when you do it gradually, um, you just eventually get used to it and you're never comfortable running 26 miles, <laughs> you know, right. but you get to a point where you can do it just like, I don't think anyone's ever comfortable never showering. Uh, there's times when you're going to feel gross and times when you're going to, uh, you know, feel oily or smelly. Um, yeah. but you, but it starts to be m- much easier. Um, and you can do, just do less and less. And it suddenly it's an, a, a conceivable thing like running 26 miles. Never thought you could, but here you are. Yeah. 
you just touched on two words that I wanted to throw at you, and that's oily and smelly. And the reason I'm saying about these two words is that I have a teenage son, and sometimes he has a bunch of his friends over, and they're in his room, and the stench oh, no. is just... <laughs> it's. And what makes it worse, James, is that they use Axe deodorant, which you mentioned in your book, and they all try different flavors of Axe deodorant. And it's just, it's overwhelming, along with their own horrible teenage boy smell. So just thought I'd add that in there, just a little... <laughs> no, I, I had a sense of where it was going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I, the teenage uh, phenomena uh, is uh, difficult to um, explain, but it is uh, something that many people have brought up to me in... Uh, refuting the ideas that uh, minimalism was a, a good idea. Yes. So let's talk about why, why we've become so obsessed with smell and why we're so keen to use all these different products. And, and we, we are, as you say, there's an overuse of products. And, and I just wonder, how did we, because I find myself actually looking for products. I look for, you know, what smells nice and what's going to feel good and all the rest of it. So how did we, is it just purely advertising or is it something inside of us that makes us want to just, just have all this, buy all these products? There are many factors that drive people toward this. Um, some people are consciously wanting to be attractive. Um, some people are totally, you know, mindlessly thinking this is just what I've been doing for a while uh, and I yeah. just should keep doing it. Some people feel a need, an external need to belong or feel like this is, uh, you know, they would like to do less, but don't feel that they can because societal pressures. Um, and uh, these beliefs kind of are traced to, the social circumstances we're in and the what we see in media and advertising around us about what we consider to be normal and what we consider to be desirable. But there isn't a reason to think that we have some sort of innate biological draw to, right. you know, smelling like cool ocean breeze or <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> like a pine tree or something. Yes. You know, uh, if anything, there draws to... Um, probably to, to, to um, you know, the smells that are produced by our microbes among people yeah. who we're attracted to. Um, and we're covering them up, we're, we're just missing out on that. Yes. In the short time we have, I've got to now turn to keeping clean, washing our hands. And of course, we're right in the middle of, no, I, maybe being in the middle is the wrong word. We're in the throes of a pandemic and keeping, uh, washing our hands is what we're being told to do all the time. How is this going to be changing how we think about just cleaning ourselves and just keeping clean with, with a pandemic that's affecting us all? Yeah, I think it's having two effects, both of which are probably good. One is the renewed emphasis on hand washing, which we've always known was very important, but many of us have gotten complacent about just you know, not doing it well enough, not taking the full amount of time, not scrubbing, um, and not using hand sanitizer at every opportunity. Um, and then at the same time, um, a lot of people are doing less with other sorts of uh, cleaning regimens, you know, being able to work from home, people are showering less, people are seeing what it's like when they change their lifestyles and, you know, are take on more minimalist approaches, or at least many people are feeling like they can experiment with that and seeing what happens. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see if that doesn't lead to us overall sort of really focusing on what, what about what I was uh, doing in my morning ritual or evening ritual? What, what was really 
for purposes of health and what was just for enjoyment and, and what was for neither and in which case can I just get rid of it? Yeah. James, what was, was there one thing, a, a takeaway for you in putting the book together that I guess not necessarily surprised you, but maybe just made you stop and think? I mean, your book made me stop and think, but, but for you, for James Hamblin and putting mm. clean together, was there, was there sort of a big takeaway for you? Oh yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I had never really questioned so much of this and I didn't understand the role of marketing in selling us soap, the same product. Uh, so soap just by definition does not vary uh, a lot. It is um, something that works to bind one end uh, to a fat and the other to water and to wash uh, oils off of you and that yet we were able you know we built huge multinational corporations um, many different ones <laughs> off yeah. of just competing brands and the way that their marketing was used to create need in people to make people feel insecure uh, and, and make them feel insecure about their appearance about their belonging about their health um, all different sorts of things um, that, that that marketing and advertising was a driver of so many things I thought were scientifically based or health based. Yes. Was, was really surprising to me. One last question for you, the difference between men and women. And what I mean by that is about smell. Do we smell different? And do we have a completely different as do our bodies react differently? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't know that I could, uh, I don't know that I could say, I mean, um, Across gender lines, I, I don't know about patterns, but I, I know that our smells are changed by things like hormone levels that when that, that dogs are able to uh, detect people with flares of stress, uh, if cortisol uh, surges and things like that, and um, have even been able to detect some cancers and there's interesting emerging science about that i get into in the book but there's reason to think that people with different hormonal levels would have different uh smells different propensities for smell but it um i'm not certain what i could say about uh <laughs> yes yeah i was just curious so, specifically yeah right um, the the book is it's a fabulous read it's very very interesting you 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 bring up so many different things I had not thought about. The book is called Clean, The New Science of Skin. My guest has been James Hamblin. James, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The details on the books we feature, like James Hamblin's The New Science of Skin, are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Still to come in the show, new music from South Korea by Jin Dajun Kim, known professionally as Dajun. And next, a conversation with Daniel Bergner on his new book, The Mind and the Moon. This is a fascinating look at mental illness, how we treat it, and the business of drugs created and possibly misused to deal with an illness we really know very little about. Right after this. Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere. You can learn more about this program at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C O. Oh.
My guest is Daniel Bergner. His book is The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches. Daniel Bergner, thank you so much for joining me at Life Elsewhere. Thanks. It's great to be talking with you. I have to begin by telling you that I have thoroughly enjoyed your book. It is, I think, one of those books that is almost daunting, and I mean that in the most in the nicest possible way because of the the subject matter, the topics that you talk about. And, it, and before we go any further, I just want to talk about something that that caught my attention after reading your book, and it made me, it prompted me to think about how we casually talk about mental illness. We we easily just it sort of rolls off of our our tongues. We go. I'm going mad. She's going mad. It's madness. We don't we don't stop to think about what that really means. And your book really focuses in on what we really mean about mental illness or not, as the case may be. So I want to pass it over to you to begin with the beginnings for you of writing the book. Just give my, my listeners just a little overview about how it came to be that you wrote The Mind and the Moon. So it begins with my younger brother. When we were in our early 20s, he was diagnosed as severely bipolar, a diagnosis he would uh, rebut today. Um, and we'll come to that. But he's diagnosed. Our parents are terrified. Uh, they're told that if he doesn't adhere to his regimen of medication, quite heavy medication, he could likely take his own life. Uh, and this is the early 80s when what we now know and take for granted as the biomedical model of psychiatry is just taking full hold. So they put their faith in medication. He, however, is an aspiring musician and he can't play the piano at the level and with the nuance that he's used to because of the side effects of medication. So the story really begins with him against psychiatry's advice going off his medication several years after he was diagnosed, put on that locked ward uh, where we grew up in Seattle and given those uh, medication prescriptions he goes off medication and the story begins there. Now that's decades ago. Uh, in answer to your question, several years ago, he and I, after lots of talking, decided it was time to tell his story and time for me to do what I'd been thinking about for decades, which was explore all the issues that his story raises. And you do it, Daniel, so incredibly well. You go into so much detail from many different perspectives. First of all, I just just go off just slightly and tell you that I lived in Seattle in the eighties. Uh, for I lived in Seattle for many many years. So the so the description that you give of your of your brother dancing on the ferry going across the Bainbridge Island. I mean, I'm there. I, you 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 sum that up so incredibly well. So I just thank you very much for that. Thanks. I'll linger on that for a sec. So just yes, to give please. listeners a quick picture. So just before he's put on a locked ward, he riding that ferry. And remember, this is a different Seattle. This is pre oh, yeah. 
on a yes. pre-Starbucks, all that. Yes. Riding that somewhat decrepit ferry, he hears in the rhythms of the water crashing at the bow and in the rhythms of the engine coming up from the bows of the boat, he hears a kind of Gregorian choir and he begins to dance and dance to those rhythms. And it's really quite magical, but to go back to your original question about language sure some people would call it kind of mad but he's doing what performance art or site specific art is all about he's creating art that's inspired by this motion and this uh these sounds coming from the boat so i just was so admiring of that um i'm much more conventional than he is and i just watching him dance that way was uh, transporting very soon thereafter, he's on that locked ward with his sanity being deeply, deeply questioned. Well, you know, Daniel, again, just sort of harking on that that moment on the boat, on the ferry, I, I, I remember myself hearing the noises. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, this is like, I mean, it's it's music in, in, in so many respects. So I totally understand. Yes. And you, you depict it so incredibly well it's it's a great opening to to a book that is in some respects and i i use the word daunting and i mean it respectfully uh, is that it's because you're dealing with such an important and such it's such an intricate topic and i like the way that you've made it very human you start off with something that we can i can certainly relate to because i've been there for, for, for the average reader, you've made it so incredibly enjoyable, the way you've just structured the writing. And I want to ask you about that before we go any further. Because as a writer, do you set out with a, with a book like The Mind and the Mood? Do you think to yourself, I've got to write in a certain sort of way? Is, does that come into it? What comes into it, I'm really glad you're asking about structure, is my desire, my ambitions as a writer. And that's to tell a story with big ideas involved, urgent ideas about how we think of ourselves, how we think of our psyches, how we think about you know, treating our uh, way to mental health. But I want those ideas to come within a set, a small set of stories, personal stories that are driving things forward. So in this case, it's my brother, it's a woman named Caroline we'll get to. It's a, a man, a very successful litigator battling with depression and anxiety named David. It's those three stories that even though they're grounded strictly in journalism, everything's on the tapes, it's gotta feel like a gripping novel to me. If not, then readers should write me hate letters. I've completely failed if it doesn't work on that level. But then threaded through is the time I spent with these leading neuroscientists who are taking us into the brain and giving me pretty stark lessons about where we are in terms of medicating our minds. And so that has its own narrative. That sense of structure is absolutely essential to me. That is that threading through of personal and gripping stories with the big idea narratives. And again, that's, that's so important to me that if it doesn't feel riveting to readers, then I feel like I just have lost my way. You, well, you, you've achieved what you set out to do, Daniel. 
going to remind my listeners, if you just joined us, I'm talking to Daniel Bergner. The title of his book is The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains and the Search for Our Psyches. Such a good read. Let's talk about Caroline, because um, you get into, into Caroline in the, the, the beginning part of the book. And uh, wow, what a story. I agree. Um, as I got to know her, I realized that the analogous character who I had planned to feature in the book, and when I wrote the book proposal to show to publishers who I featured, I was going to have to let go of that person because Caroline's story was so gripping to me. So basically, uh, she, since childhood, has heard voices and also had other elements of psychosis. So breaks from what she would call shared reality. Yeah. And, and quite serious breaks from that reality. Um, that takes her on a journey from many, many, many medications, a kind of pileup of medications that, as is true for a fair percentage of those with psychosis, doesn't really do her much good in terms of suppressing those symptoms and meanwhile has severe side effects again, as it does for many. So those side effects are when she's in middle school, tremendous weight gain. She's suddenly gaining 50 pounds. She's, her body is kind of out of her own control. It's not just tremors, it's not subtle. It's real jerking of the body, sense that her neck is always gonna move out of control if she doesn't restrain it. She's then agitated and feels so alienated. She starts pulling out her own hair. So picture, this middle school kid losing her hair, losing control of her body and gaining weight. I mean, she's tormented by her peers and she lives this way through uh, high school into college. She's very, very bright, but she's still battling these forces. She finally goes off medication and her journey, uh, which includes a very improbable stint as a roller derby star in Asheville, North Carolina, is just uh, transporting. It raises fundamental questions about how we think about people who do get engulfed in alternate realities and how they might cope with that. But I'll just say one last thing. When I heard the roller derby part of her story, which is not the like Jane Fonda, yes, yes. sexy women in skimpy suits kind of roller derby, but it's yes. kind of rugby without a ball among women with all sorts of body types and, you know, packed small city stadiums. When I heard that part, I just thought, there is no way I'm walking away from this as long as Caroline is willing to have me in her life. For a few years, I'm going to tell her story. So that leads me to ask you, Daniel, about finding Caroline and, and, and talking to him, being in her life for a couple of years. I was I was curious to know how easy was that for you? I, and I don't mean the access that you had. I mean, just mentally, excuse me saying this, but just mentally talking to this person that you were kind of studying in, in, so, in so many respects. How easy was that for you? I'm only going silent because that's a really complicated question. It's an easy one to ask, but a complicated one to think about. In a way, I want to say very easy. When I walked in the first time to meet Caroline, 
in this kind of desolate, since closed cafe in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Now people think of Holyoke, they think of Holyoke College. It's actually in the next door town. Holyoke is a pretty depressed yes. New England former industrial town. So when I walked into that desolate cafe, she immediately acknowledged that her voices were wary. Um, and her voices have a real life for her. People need to understand that. But I sat down and we began to establish a rapport. And I began to understand that even as she's hearing her voices, thus in, let's call it an unshared reality, she is also fully present with me. Yes. So I'm going to flash forward just to help listeners understand. Just a couple weeks ago, she said to me what she often says, can you repeat that question? Because my voice has drowned you out. What we were talking about just for fun was the fact that my book group was insisting on reading Moby Dick. I didn't want to reread Moby Dick. And I was telling her about this. And she, in turn, went into a long disquisition about why I was being foolish, why exactly Moby Dick is a spectacular book, and I should just stop whining. Now, this is just an indication. We think, oh, this person is in an alternate reality. They can't be reached. They're mad. Yes. They're crazy. Often, just not true. We, I mean, I started off by saying we say madness. We talk about, oh, it's madness. I'm, I'm going mad. We say it just so frivolously, but there's a whole serious side to this that we, we don't really face and we don't really deal with. Right. So Caroline's story is a great emblem of this because she goes through all of the things we fear with mental illness. So she hears voices that tell her quite repeatedly to take her own life. She hears voices that tell her to intervene before terrible things are going to happen to her family, to herself, and to intervene violently. So she's hearing commandments to take her life, to harm others, all the things that are our communal nightmares. Here's the however. So as I tell her story, and again, I hope it is a gripping story. It is one where she finds without the medication that she's told she absolutely must take, without the medication, she finds a way to cope with, incorporate, understand in an imaginative way those voices and what they might be trying to say beneath those words of violence. And she now leads this transformative movement about how we might reimagine the idea of mental health. I've got to add a caveat here. I'm not here to preach abandon your medication, whether no, it's no. for the, the common, yeah. you know, conditions like uh, depression or anxiety or or the more uh, rare like psychosis. But I am here, the ideal level of the book beneath these personal stories is a deep questioning of that. And we should talk a bit about what the scientists have to say yes. about where we are in terms of medication. But this at the same time, Daniel, does lead us into the discussion about medications and about the the prescribing of medications there is a part in your book and it's a long passage and i hope you don't mind if i just quote it Please. you're talking about ads the pharmaceutical ads and you say an ad concluded 
Prozac is being prescribed for more than 17 million Americans. Chances are someone you know is feeling merry again because of it. Almost astonishing to read that. Yeah. So we are one of two countries. This was true at the time I was writing. I haven't checked it in the last year, but I believe it's still true. We're one of two countries, the other being New Zealand, that allows for direct advertising from pharmaceutical company to consumer. And anyone who turns on the TV sees these ads. You know, the one of the issues, and I'll mention two, is the simplicity, the distorting simplicity with which the ads present the pharmaceuticals as a kind of godsend. You know, we're, we've all heard, if you're depressed, we need to treat your brain just as something that's a little bit out of balance. It's just yes. like diabetes, you take insulin for diabetes, you'll take the SSRI like Prozac or the closely related SNRI. Uh, and will balance out the chemicals of your brain. It's simply not that simple. Even the people who spent their entire careers in pursuit of pharmaceutical breakthroughs will warn it's just not that way. That is a kind of myth invented by the pharmaceutical companies to appeal to our need. Let's hold ourselves accountable. Our need for the quick fix. Yes, and then there's the manufacturer of Paxil, uh, who say, and I'm not going to read the whole quote, but they say starts off, this is in the 2000s, just as a cake recipe requires to use flour, sugar, and baking powder in the right amounts, your brain needs a fine chemical balance in order to perform at its best. And then a f- little further down, Paxil is with you throughout the day to help you manage and treat your condition. And these are TV ads. Yes. They are TV ads. The first one you read is, I believe, a Christmas season ad. That's why the reference to being merry. Um, And no one talks about, even on the relatively safe antidepressants, that there are real side effects. The sexual side effects, which affect about half of those who take the drugs, are so rarely spoken of, partly because we don't like to talk about our our sexuality, but partly because the pharmaceutical companies have consistently until recently downplayed this. And then we already touched on the much more significant and debilitating side effects of the antipsychotics, which are prescribed more and more widely. So you won't just see them now prescribed in case of psychosis, you'll see them prescribed to people in old age homes or assisted living centers for yes. you know, your, your aging parents or grandparents who are getting a little out of control. They're prescribed as sedatives. For kids, especially foster kids who aren't watched over and guarded as perhaps as vigilantly as they might be, they're prescribed widely for behavior that's difficult, not for psychosis, yes. but as a way to just tamp down behavior. As we're talking about pharmaceuticals, we've got to talk about the other sort of big bugaboo here, and that is money. It's all about money. There's a huge, it's a huge industry. The, the, the amounts of money are just, I mean, they're crazy. Um, you talk about this in your book, and, and I'm just wondering, where do you think this is, this is headed as regards how much power the pharmaceutical companies have? Right. So let's give a little bit of background. So, and this is why we start with my brother's story is that in the early 80s, for simplicity's sake for the moment, two forces converge. On the one hand, the pharmaceutical companies have over the previous couple of decades developed a set of drugs, whether for psychosis or for depression. 
So they've got something to market. Meanwhile, the psychiatry profession is feeling very insecure. It is sort of losing or has lost favor. Um, it's felt that it's not really a science. It doesn't really belong in the field of medicine. And it wants to declare itself very much part of medicine, part of science, and the possessor of objective scientific truth. So that assertion of expertise converges with the pharmaceutical desire, of course, to yes. uh, get profit. And thus, we, we're still living in this era, right, of a biomedical approach to our brains and our minds. Where is this headed? I actually think we're at a turning point. I didn't really know this when I started on the book several years ago, but along the way, a couple of quick examples. So the New England Journal of Medicine, at, you know, two years ago, runs a lead opinion piece that goes into a lot of detail, calling out the dead ends we've run into, both in terms of biologic treatments for mental illness and in terms of biologic understanding of our mental health conditions. So we're not only unable to treat, we're not able to comprehend with a biologic approach. The World Health Organization even more loudly echoes this just last year. So there are, and I could go on, there are examples that indicate a turning point. I'll just say this to sum up this answer. So three important, I'd say preeminent researchers who spent their careers become the scientific centers of the book. One deals with depression, one with psychosis, one with the genetics of psychiatric disease. And they all say more or less the same thing. We haven't made any real progress in medicating our way to mental health in at least half a century. Some would say 70 years. Yeah. So there's a question that's being raised that's in the air now, which is where do we go from here? It's not abandon the search for medication, though even the drug companies have pulled back a lot. Some would estimate about 80% pullback from research and development because there's such frustration. It's, it's not just abandon that search. We'll still go searching. And these scientists are fascinating in, in their projects. I loved that working on that part of the book, but it is thinking about mental health in a new way. Yes. And I'm so glad that you brought us to this point because this is something that right now, unfortunately, is so incredibly topical. Almost every day we hear it was mental health that caused him to get that gun. You know where I'm going with that. I would like to get your take on this, Daniel, because it does seem that we've got into this space where mental health is being, it's being used politically in, in, in a lot of respects. And it's also being used as a scapegoat without actually talking about what we're really talking about. I'd like to get your take on the whole mental health v. guns. Right. So, of course, we could talk for an hour. Yes, yes, this. yes. I guess my mind's going to a couple things. One is, with very good intention, my colleagues in the media tend to refer to mental health issues in the second or third paragraph of any story about violence. The hope, I think, 
for those writers is I'm going to humanize this person. I'm going to say he wasn't just evil. He was just suffering mental health issues. But I don't think we're carefully enough interrogating what that means. What were the diagnoses, if any? I'm not always sure there have been uh, when we throw that term mental illness around. And then what are we really saying about that balance, as you raise, between mental health issues and gun issues? What would be, what would avert the crisis if we're going to focus on the crisis moment? Okay, there, once, once we're at the point where violence is imminent, I think it's pretty clear we're not going to, Eureka, solve whatever mental health yeah. issue is at stake, if any, we're going to have to avert <laughs> the severity of the violent episode. So at the moment of crisis, we need to think about the availability of the gun. But here's, here's a point I'd like to make. So even relatively mainstream centrist thinkers on this, for instance, in New York, we have a very centrist, no-nonsense mayor who's got a no-nonsense director of public health whose background is in mental health. And what he told me was, we need to think upstream. What he meant by that is the moment of crisis is way too late. And what he focused on upstream, although he certainly, he's someone who would raise medication as probably essential, but he also said, we need to think about the isolation that people are facing and sinking into from such an early age. And that has to do with how we think about mental health issues, with how we rush toward often involuntary treatment, which makes people feel like they have no power over their own destiny and their own lives, makes people, people feel extra isolated. And you can imagine that level of isolation of feeling so different, which Caroline's story is all about, can lead to horrible places. Towards the end of the, your, your book, you talk, uh, you say that long after midnight on the night of election day, David went to bed with the outcome of the presidential race unresolved, a lack of clarity that in his mind turned into vivid scenarios of cops and military tanks confronting anti-Trump protesters in the streets. No, I mean, look, this is a book about real things. And yes. so David, um, who's the third character, who's, uh, really an accomplished litigator. I mean, he's argued in front of the Supreme Court. He's a civil yeah. rights crusader. Um, but he's beset by the idea uh, that he is not only incompetent, but that his work is literally cognitively beyond him. He has no will. He no longer cares. He's, he's beset by the symptoms of depression, plus the symptoms which have recently come to light that come with trying to withdraw from antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. Yes. Along comes the, the uh, crises for him around Trump's election, around the anti-Muslim uh, decrees, and it all sort of comes to yes. the fore for him. So real world really comes into the book there because that's what David is facing and, and his journey. So there's my brother's journey yeah, on yeah, and then and on yeah, medication. Yeah. There's Caroline's journey, you know, finding a way to reimagining how we think about mental health. And then there's David's, which is 
he's trying any way he can to write his psyche, his yes. somewhat, but not extremely depressed yes. psyche. And he goes off and, and one of the ex experimental approaches is that he tries psilocybin, but it's not available in a mainstream study-like way. It's available to him underground. So he goes to this kind of shaman named Dune and he's tormented as he goes because he's just can't believe he's entrusting his brain to a man named Dune. Uh, you know, he thinks like, is this, I haven't even smoked weed. Like maybe my brain is just gonna dissolve, you know, when I take this alternative approach and that's just the beginning of his journey to try to write his mind. One of the questions that I, I, I've been pondering asking you about, why do pharmaceutical companies come up with such complicated and strange and almost threatening names? I, I, as I'm reading your book, I'm going through the, the different <laughs> names. That's, in, that's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way before. I am sure, given the amount of money that's poured into their development, and then even more, by the way, readers should know, into their advertising. There's way more poured into the advertising than into the science. Yeah. Uh, I am sure they've given careful thought. I'm now just thinking an antipsychotic Seroquel. I'm sure there's something about the name Quell that you know <laughs> gets in there. I, you know, I I don't know. Abilify is one that isn't threatening. That that gives us the sense that it's going to make us able. But yeah, lots of lots of money and thought. I mean, you know, if you go back a few decades. Salvador Dali is hired to create an exhibit at uh, the American Psychiatric Association conference to show how wonderful one of the antidepressant drugs is yes. going to be. I mean, we're kind of smiling, but I'm not really laughing. I was, think I was thinking about this question as I was driving into the studio today, and I'm in a line of cars, and, and I noticed that this large SUV is in front of me, and it's named Armada. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about pharmaceutical names and then i'm thinking about oh, for the drugs and then i'm thinking about how it relates to cars and these crazy names that cars have armada <laughs> do yeah. they really know what armada means <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a good question but again leads us back to a discussion of the science um i'm thinking of this fascinating researcher into depression so his insight was, let me look for what makes some of us, probably the minority among us, really resilient against depression. We all know this, a friend who always seems so buoyant. And when we ourselves, and I'll just say me, yes. is feeling much less than buoyant, melancholy or worse, I'm just like, I can't be with that person. I don't know how you stay so above water, but right now is not the time for us yes. to go out for coffee. Yes. So when Eric Nessler researches at a very pinpointed level, you know, inside the neurons, inside the brain cells, is can I find the molecular mechanisms that are the basis for that in some people? And then can I transfer that? give that to other people. But he gave me this great lecture. He just said, look, the way right now, the way that pharmaceuticals treat the brain is like a water balloon. We inject a chemical into that water balloon. Of course, it can have for some, some good effect, but that chemical is flowing all around yes, in yes, the brain, yes. hence the side effects 
hence why we really need a much more targeted approach. And that has been for half a century elusive. Daniel, towards the end of the book, you quote a poem, and I really want to point this out to everybody. First of all, I enjoyed reading it, and I want to know why you you decided to put the poem in. So remind me, my mind is going to my brother's song, um, but you're going to have to remind me. This is me. the one, oh, sorry, this is the one by Bob. Um, oh, yeah. That he'd written. Yes, yes. Yeah, so. Um, well, I guess it's a song rather than a poem, isn't it? Right, so, yeah, although yeah. it looks like a poem on the page, yeah. fair enough. Um, so look, this is, this is one of the most personal aspects of the book, which is not yeah, only yeah. my brother's story, but our parents' story, yes. our family's story. Um, and here's something I think for all families to think about. You know, what my parents wanted to do at that time was control the situation. They were warned that my brother would take his own life and they want to do anything as all parents would do, as I would want to do to prevent that worst outcome. Hence the locked ward, hence the, the emphatic, you need to take this heavy medication. I don't think my brother's relationship to our parents ever really recovered from that. Like he long, perhaps always felt it as a fundamental lack of faith on their part for him, even after his life, spoiler alert, became really flourishing and meaningful. And so he's a musician. That's a song he wrote about his relationship with our father. You know, when he first played it for me, I was moved to tears. It's yes, just yes. it's just an emblem. By that point, our father was dying. Um, and it was it's a farewell, but a complicated, painful farewell because my brother really still feels those feelings it's also so fitting to to, to almost close the book with and, and and i thank you for including that i would love to talk to you for so much longer there are so many things we could go into here the book is the mind and the moon my brother's story the science of our brains and the search for our psyches my guest has been the author daniel bergner highly recommend it thank you so much for writing it i i, I very quickly we only have just a few seconds how difficult was it for you just at the, the, the very end to sort of go okay i've written it what did you want everybody's takeaway to be I always want everyone's takeaway, and particularly with this book, to just to have a much deeper sense of who we are as human beings. Daniel, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Norman. It's been great talking with you. The Mind and the Moon is a book I highly recommend. Details about all the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. At the age of 12, Jen Dajun Kim moved 
from the Korean city of Incheon to China and attended an international school where she met her friends from different parts of the world. It was there that she acquired the bizarre moniker J-Knife from her English teacher. In an effort to deal with childhood trauma and teenage angst, she started writing songs like she was filling in a journal. In that journal, she recorded herself ruminating on self-identity, culture, religion, doubt, anger, and love. And from 2017 to 2018, Da uploaded her songs to various music streaming platforms under the name J-Knife. On her 2021 album, J-Knife, Da rips out the pages from her old journal and staples them together. She holds them in her hands and mourns the fading of her younger self. To her, J-Knife is a recollection, but it also signals a new epoch of her musical world. In Untitled 2, Da struggles with understanding her dreams and desires as she candidly sings, I feel like I'm exploding. This is Da and this is Life Elsewhere.
of that one from the album J-Knife by Da Jung. You can find the details at lifeelsewhere.co. Now make sure you let me know what you think of the show. My email address comes up in the closing credits, so be ready to jot it down. Till next time, be well, be safe, and you know it makes sense. Be nice. Bye-bye. have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O. Mm-hmm.